episode of the Whipstitch podcast is brought to you by the Murder Mystery Quilt, a year-long subscription club where you sew the quilt to solve the crime. Visit MurderMysteryQuilt.com to find out more. Quilting is a rich, culturally intense art form that involves taking small bits of textiles and combining them in new ways. Growing up, I thought a quilt was a bedspread. I really was not raised in a quilting family. And as reported by a lot of my quilting friends, um, I shared the same attitude toward quilting that many of their partners and spouses do, which is, wait, so you're saying you're going to buy a brand new fabric and you're going to cut it up and then you're going to put it back together with other brand new fabric in different arrangements. That, that was my attitude toward quilting before I tried quilting. Since then, I have learned not only of the enormous satisfaction, creative satisfaction that comes from creating a quilt, um, but also the engineering that goes into it, the math, the angles, the, the shapes, the design, the ways in which one must understand the process of addition and subtraction that happens for various shapes. There's a lot of geometry and physics involved in quilting, and I didn't expect that. But I've also discovered over time how rich the various cultural approaches are to quilting um, on lots of different levels. Primarily those of underrepresented minority or outsider groups. And I think one of the most fascinating, it's hard to say most fascinating because there are lots of amazing quilting stories, but one of the ones that has fascinated me the most is the Queen's Quilt, which was made by Queen Liliokalani in Hawaii in the late 1800s. On this episode of the Whip Stitch Podcast, we're going to dive a little bit into the history of the Queen's Quilt and the impact that quilting had, both anticipated and unanticipated, on Hawaiian culture. Thanks for listening. Liliokalani was the last sovereign monarch of the Hawaiian kingdom, and her rule began in 1891. It lasted until the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom in 1893, um, which might be news to you. <laughs> it certainly was news to me. I don't think that I had any awareness on any level that Hawaii was ever a sovereign nation. I think my only understanding was this sort of it became a state in the 50s and before that, fog. So she was born in Honolulu on the island of Oahu. And if you have ever been lucky enough to visit Hawaii, you'll know what an incredible, rich, tropical paradise it is. Um, it is one of those places on the planet that, you know, like a lot of destinations where you go visiting as a tourist, they're kind of over-promised and they under-deliver. And Hawaii, maybe with the exception of Honolulu, which is a major city, it's a big city, so it's not quite the untouched paradise that a lot of us picture, but almost every other square inch of Hawaii is this just unreal place that when you see it, 
is difficult to believe. It's better than anything else you've ever seen. Funny enough, and I, I don't think that this is necessarily apropos to a discussion of the Queen's Quilt, but um, if you are old enough to have seen original episodes of Magnum P.I. with Tom Selleck, I, I think that's one of the, the sort of popular media representations of Hawaii that really gets it right, where you see so much of the natural beauty, but you also begin to get an understanding of the social tensions and the cultural complexity of what's happening on that island. Um, Iolani Palace is on the island of Oahu. It is not that far outside Honolulu. And it was the home of the last kings and queens of Hawaii when it was a sovereign nation. Um, it's a funny place. It's like right on one of the main drags through town. And if you don't like have it on your radar, you might not, you might drive right past it and not even super notice it there. Um, when my husband and I visited Hawaii a few years ago, probably like 10 years ago, actually, um, I had recently read a copy of the Aloha Quilt, which I purchased off Amazon. Um, and I don't know if you, I don't know if you read a lot of quilting fiction, um, but Jennifer Chavarini is a novelist. She writes fiction that centers around quilt and quilting. She has one called the Aloha Quilt. And I popped up when I was searching for travel books. I was looking for books about visiting Hawaii. This pops up. I said, Hawaii, sewing, a novel, sign me up. Um, we flew to Hawaii with our youngest daughter who was still nursing at the time, which is why we took her. And she nursed and napped the whole flight. You guys, moment of silence and gratitude for any baby who will sleep for an eight-hour flight. So holding her in one, I couldn't even pass her off to my husband while we were flying because she was like out like a light and I didn't want to disturb her. So I just sat and read this novel the whole flight all the way over. Um, and part of the plot in this particular novel, I won't give it away just in case you actually do want to read it. Um, part of it revolves around a character's visit to see the queen's quilt, which is a real thing. So in order to understand the Queen's Quilt, I think you have to first understand the story behind it, which is that, um, it, which is, you know, the history of what happened to Liliuokalani. Um, there was a, a failed attempt in 1895 by royal royalists, royal loyalists, to restore Queen Liliuokalani to power. Um, they staged an uprising. It was unsuccessful. The queen was arrested. She was forced to abdicate her throne um, and made, made a choice that I, I really have a hard time even wrapping my brain around. Um, she signed her authority as sovereign monarch over to the United States government. My understanding from my research is that she was led to believe that it would be temporary that what she was doing was um, was an effort to make it possible for her to come back. That this was a temporary solution. It would be overturned. She would be back in power. Hawaii would remain free. But in the short term, in 1895, she believed this was the only solution available to her to preserve her nation. As its representative, as its queen, that was what she wanted. She wanted her people to be free. Subsequent to this moment when she signs these documents, she was imprisoned in her own bedroom in her palace, 
called Iolani Palace. She was not told how long her imprisonment would last. She was allowed no visitors with the exception of a single close companion. And as I was revisiting this story, preparing for this podcast, I thought about how much more empathy most of us can have than I had 10 years ago to that situation. That having never experienced lockdown or solitary confinement or quarantine on any level, I think I thought I knew what that was like. And I could picture, oh gosh, what if I couldn't leave my room? What would I do? (laughs) And I think I recently heard James Taylor say that he was planning a tour um, in 2020 at the beginning of, of quarantine for everybody. And that he, you know, he's sort of ramping up and he's older now. I think he's in his 70s, 60s or 70s now. And he's ramping up to do this, you know, 30 city tour at his age, which is no small undertaking. And he was telling the story like when word comes down, I mean, he's like packing up the car ready to start this tour. And word comes down and says, oh, no, we're not doing, we're not doing that anymore. And he said his first reaction was overwhelming relief like it was a snow day. And you think, oh, we're not doing that? And he followed that up by saying that feeling passed very quickly, and it didn't feel like a snow day anymore. Which mirrored my own experience with lockdown pretty closely, that at first you're like, this is amazing. Everybody's home. We all get to be together. We're safe, at least for now. And then very quickly that that feeling faded. And going back and rereading Queen Liliokalani's story, that she, it wasn't even that she had to stay home. She had to stay in her her quarters, which I think it was more than only her bedroom. It was like a two-room suite with a balcony. Um, but she, she could have no visitors. She could not see her people. She was not allowed to speak to her people. She was not allowed to, you know, like communication was virtually zero. She had this one companion who volunteered to stay with her throughout her confinement. The companion was permitted to leave on Sundays to see her own family. Um, But outside of that, the queen was alone, alone in her room with no contact with the outside world. The official website for Iolani Palace, which I will link to in the show notes, talks about, they call it now the imprisonment room. They don't call it her bedroom anymore. Um, And it says that she was denied visitors, except for this one companion, and that her day consisted of her daily prayers, reading music composition, crochet, and quilting. That was what she did all day. And again, when I initially learned this story, I thought, well, sure. Yeah, I mean, you got you got daylight to burn. You know, you're gonna want to do something that feeds your soul, something that's a little more of like a like a flow activity where you can kind of get in the zone, where your surroundings become irrelevant because you're very focused on the work. But looking at it now, I see more there than I did. Um, and I so I want to talk a little bit about the history of sewing and quilting for Hawaiians, right? Um, Because I think it's super relevant to understanding the queen's quilt. That um, sewing and quilting is not 
It's not traditional to Hawaiians. You may have seen Hawaiian quilts, which are these really elaborate appliques where they're, you know, like when you made paper snowflakes as a kid and you would fold the piece of paper eight different ways and then you would clip something out and then you'd open it and it's this symmetrical, reflected, mirrored, fractal kind of pattern. Hawaiian quilts are made like that today, what's referred to as Hawaiian quilts. Um, and then each of those edges is painstakingly hand appliqued onto the background fabric. But that's a modern tradition for Hawaiian peoples. The most traditional craft that is similar would be the making of bark cloth or kapa, this extraordinarily laborious task that took months. Um, bark was stripped and peeled away from mulberry trees. It's mulberry bark that they were using. It's stiffer and thicker than cotton. It could be dyed and stitched and made flexible over time. But first, it had to be stripped and peeled away from the mulberry. It had to be soaked in streams under running water with stone weights. So you're like pounding it flat and weighing it down. Um, then you create patterns in the bark cloth. You dye it. You shape it. It required a lot of work that was similar to quilting. Um, it was often sewed uh, with like sewed like bone needles, you know, like uh, like thread that was made from natural fibers, not the kind of thread that we think of. It might have been printed. Kappa a lot of times is printed. Um, a lot of the designs that you might see on uh, ethnographic examples of kappa are very similar to what you would see in a more modern Hawaiian quilt today. Um, but the process was... It was almost entirely women who were doing this work, pounding the bark cloth together. Um, missionaries showed up in Hawaii long before Queen Liliokalani surrendered the sovereignty of it as a nation. Um, and they saw these like traditional practices surrounding kapa and introduced the idea of quilting to replace that craft work. A lot of the work surrounding bark cloth had this deep, cultural, spiritual, sacred significance for the Pacific Islanders, for the people of Hawaii. And as these missionaries arrived, for them, um, they wanted to, it would be nice if the word was modernized, but they wanted to civilize the, the natives, quote unquote. They did not like that the natives were naked, um, it became wearing clothing, Western clothing became in this, uh, this symbol of conversion to Christianity, which was used almost, not even almost used as a proxy for civilization. Like you are not civilized unless you're dressed in clothing, but clothing has to be made of fabric and fabric has to be sewn, right? So adopting Western dress for the natives of the islands was seen as one step forward toward adopting the ideas and ideals of the missionaries. And so the missionaries worked very hard on conveying this idea, like what what constitutes appropriate attire? Like what, what do you put on your body that makes you not naked? Yeah, which is if you're someone who sews clothing, that is not an idea that we think about very often. Like, what makes clothes clothes? I think if we see someone in a loincloth, we think, well, that's not clothing. That's a loincloth. But why is that, right? That's a very, you know, westernized, culturally laden concept. So here are these Pacific Island cultures. Their garments were reflective of social status 
They were not necessarily reflective of their identity as an individual. Not They didn't reflect, you know, nudity was not seen as inappropriate, so it didn't reflect your rightness to, to wear a certain garment. It did not necessarily reflect your gender, even. There were a lot of genderless, sort of androgynous garments that were considered wholly acceptable by the Pacific Islanders. So this idea of pants versus dresses versus nudity, like that was a whole new idea. And if the missionaries felt like they could get people to adopt this idea, they felt like they were making some headway into bringing them around. So the value of sewing was seen as as a classroom, a classroom to introduce these ideas, in particular to women, to convince them that this was, if you are good at sewing, that means you're a good student. If you're a good student, then you are adopting our ideals, and that's a good thing, you know, check mark, gold star. Um, so many of the Hawaiian missionaries were widely known for giving, you know, like needles, sewing, scissors, whatever, as rewards, fabric, as rewards for quote unquote good behavior, for coming to church on Sunday, for mastering the English language, for adopting Western styles of dress. You were rewarded for these things. Um, they also, there's a lot of cultural weight to the things that we make. And as someone who sews, I think about that a lot, this idea that that what I make is a reflection of the world I want to live in, the things that matter most to me, the ways in which I am connected to the past and to the future. Um, they are a reflection both of my identity as an individual and my membership in a larger group, whether that's my family or my neighborhood or the charities to which I donate or the guild to which I belong or the city in which I live or my national identity like Betsy Ross and the flag, right? So there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of cultural weight and identity there. So some of this bark cloth, this kappa making was, was seen as the, the work of people who are not westernized, they're not civilized right? That was how the missionaries viewed it. So when they were taught to sew or to quilt or to knit or to weave, it took the place of this bark cloth making, right? A lot of the Pacific Islanders used bark cloth for mats, for tapestries, for clothing. Um, it took up a lot of time, but it also was this communal task where people were working together and sharing stories and having conversations. And anytime the missionaries came in to replace that with different crafts, they were disrupting that pathway of cultural transmission. The missionaries saw that as a good thing. This is an opportunity for us to change the narrative, change the story, introduce a new worldview. Um, and a lot of that was intentional, right? There was also this idea, whew, I know, I know, it gets heavy. There was also this idea of creating, I dislike this so, so deeply, but industrious natives, right? This idea that, um, that craft work that took up a lot of time, but didn't make the Pacific Islanders more Western was wasted time. And any other time, if they were going to engage in hula, if they were going to engage in creative native, uh, you know, native foods, they it, it looked to a lot of these missionaries like the islanders were were idle all the time, you know, like 
Um, my graduate degree is in anthropology and archaeology, and there's a very, very famous quote in anthropology that talks about how hunter-gatherer economies, those, those people groups, that their lives were nasty, short, and brutish. But the more information that, that social scientists can gather about what those societies were like prior to the introduction of these Western ideas is the opposite that they actually had a lot of downtime, which was when stories got told and uh, relationships deepened and social status emphasized. And you know, like it's not all hunky-dory holding hands. There was some other, you know, there were definitely some taboos being being communicated. There were definitely some other things like that. But um, but th- from, from a, the perspective of somebody who shows up in a ship wearing a wool suit that they refuse to take off in the heat of Hawaii, <laughs> it must have looked like there were all these natives were just like, just like hanging around on the beach, man. And so sewing became this way to fill up that time with more acceptable behavior. So they started having them manufacture cotton cloth by by actually weaving the cloth. Um, even though cotton doesn't make a lot of sense out there, right? Um, other clothing options existed, but that is not what they wanted the Pacific Islanders to be wearing. Um, the, um, the vast majority of the indigenous population at the time was very, very sick from these Western diseases. They may not have actually been lazy. They might have just been super sick. Um, putting cotton clothing on in a very humid climate doesn't make sense, but it certainly doesn't make sense for someone who is unwell But there was this connection, this cultural connection between making these things, making the fabric, doing the sewing, making the quilts, and being morally upright. So, fold in a little bit of stuff about women in these cultures. So, these missionaries are exclusively men. Most of the sailors, because of the, uh, you know, the superstitions that a lot of sailors carry on their ships, were also men, with the almost exclusive exception of pirates, another topic that we will save for another day. Um, and so here all these white dudes show up, and they're on the island with these Pacific natives, and the women are naked, and nobody seems like they're working that hard. And they say, we've got a great idea. You guys should be sewing. Let's get you a weaving fabric. We'll get you dyeing it. We'll get you cutting it and putting it together. We'll make you some clothes. So here's this introduction of clothing, but also this introduction of the idea of domesticity. Um, The the traditional clothing of the island people didn't require the same level of care, didn't require fresh water to wash it. It was not associated with women's work, right? So the idea of what, what women were supposed to, heavy on the quotation marks, supposed to do versus what men were supposed to do, came along with women's clothing you know the clothing was heavy it's restrictive um i'm relying very heavily on on an academic paper that i will link to in in the show notes here you can read more about some of this stuff because i truly think it's fascinating but when i read this particular academic paper i started thinking about the queen's quilt so here's this idea that, that cloth and clothing and quilting are actually not Hawaiian. They were introduced to the islands. 
But then the queen, Liliuokalani, when she is in captivity, starts making this crazy quilt. That's how she spent her time under house arrest. Um, crazy quilting it was the most popular style of quilting at the time in the late 1890s. Um, and it involved working as you went. There was not a pre-planned block pattern. There was not a pre-planned geometric design. It was entirely uh, sort of improvisational. Uh, you worked it as you went. There was not even necessarily a finished size in mind. Although when you look at the Queen's Quilt, which you can do if you Google Queen's Quilt or if you use the links in the show notes, if you look at images of it, the blocks come out to a consistent size. It is now on display the finished quilt that she made is 97 inches by 95 inches. It is called the Queen's Quilt. It is on display in Iolani Palace. It is pieced and embroidered and embellished all over. The story is included in the novel that I mentioned at the beginning, um, and it's included in a tour of the palace. They don't let you take pictures of it, but there is um, there's a guidebook on, on sale in the gift shop that has photographs of it. So I've included, again, in the show notes, I've included some photographs of what the quilt looks like. It's, it is not a blanket. This is a piece of art. And when you walk into this room with these giant floor to ceiling windows that look out onto this beautiful property that just drips with the tropical grandeur of Oahu, um, and then you see this quilt in the middle of the room encased in glass, it is worn with age. It is very, very fragile. I felt tremendously moved. When I go back and I visit those memories again from the perspective of somebody who spent a year and a half in and out of lockdown, it becomes even more poignant. Queen Liliuokalani was in captivity for 10 months where she was not allowed to leave her room, expecting and anticipating the return to her throne, which never came. The Queen's Quilt is made of scraps of velvet, ribbon, silk, linen. Um, almost certainly these were all pieces from these women's wardrobes, from their clothing. Each block is uh, it's just embroidered with so much detail and with names and with dates and with icons and with symbols of the old Hawaii. So as I'm reading this academic paper about what it meant to introduce sewing to the people of Hawaii and, and why that was important, I started thinking about the Queen's Quilt right? Um, quilting, the missionaries intended it as a way to, to teach and really to train, because those are two different words, the, the native people, the, the Hawaiian people. They wanted to show them what you can do with fabric, with textiles that are not bark cloth. And quilting was this way to be like, you know, let's teach you how to take a stitch. Let's teach you how to handle fabric. Um, let's teach you to be industrious. Let's sort of indoctrinate, inculcate this, this idea, right? Um, they, and they would use them as not just like bed coverings, which, I mean, you kind of need in Hawaii, but not really, um, but as, as decor. They would hang them up as, as these wall hangings with 
beautiful colors. You know, they they liked the the idea of introducing symmetry and repetition into these more organic um, native art forms. This seemed like an opportunity. But when you look at how quilting acts under the surface, like there's the there's the thing and there's the thing below the thing, right? It really had the function of empowering these women. It doesn't just reflect aesthetic beauty. So here's an opportunity to explore shape and form and function and color. It also is an opportunity to um, to provide for their their community by reusing things that might otherwise be thrown away. Um, they are displaying frugality and resourcefulness. They are showing this opportunity to um, to utilize their intellect in ways that might otherwise be overlooked. But consider also that um, it, this is a chance for dissent right? That the, the communities that make quilts are very often making statements with their quilts. This is a way of passing along tradition and belief and identity. And when you look at quilts in different contexts around the world, that happens again and again and again with these underrepresented or marginalized people groups where that if they are the outsider, making a quilt is seen as this sort of innocuous thing. But so many of us have heard about Underground Railroad quilts that showed the way north for the escaped slaves from the south. Th that same concept applies in lots of different people groups, most notably the, the Pacific Islanders. So here's the queen. She's imprisoned. She has been convinced is probably the kindest word, to give up her nation's sovereignty. Um, you could argue she was tricked because she genuinely believed she was going to regain her throne, and that did not ever happen. And she's in captivity, and she's making this quilt, and everywhere, everywhere, everywhere on this quilt are symbols of the, the cultural and national identity of the Hawaiian people. Um, there are consistently these ideas, this like metaphor of the maternal. And Lilio Kalani repeatedly said that she was the mother of her people. And so even in a crazy quilt, which doesn't have like a center center because of the way it's constructed, there is this idea of there being an umbilicus, this like maternal center to which her people can return. Um, the the shaping of a Hawaiian quilt, which has this, like they call it an echo, the way that it's symmetrical all the way around, reflects a Hawaiian worldview. So again, crazy quilts are very Victorian in structure, super Western. I'm not sure you get much more like stereotypically Western than Victorian handicrafts. And here's Queen Liliokalani, and she's working in crazy quilt style, but she is including the names and the dates of important elements of her experience as queen over Hawaii, um, embellishing the quilt again and again um, in each block, including the Hawaiian flag in places, including the flag of the, you know, the conquerors in places. Um, I asked when we were on this tour and we're like seeing the quilt, we're in the, the imprisonment room, and I asked, did she plan for it to be this size? Like I was, I was curious 
when I look at it and I see her, she's taken the time to embroider all these names and these dates and these places. Did did the queen have this vision of how big it was going to be? So was this something where she's alone in her room with one companion and there is a lot of space for reflection and thought under those circumstances? Was this something that she planned out from the ground up? Um, so I asked the docent, and that he did not have a direct answer. He told me, and I agree with him, it's likely it started out as two small squares and then grew and grew as the length of her undefined term of imprisonment wore on. And so what impressed me then was this legacy that she's left behind. This entire quilt is worked by hand, and there's something very sad and sweet about it. Um, it's possible that I'm reading that into the quilt from the story. I don't. I really don't think so. Um, Queen Liliokalani never regained her throne. She died living away from the palace after her release. She believed the documents she signed were temporary. She was given the United States president's assurance that they would be overturned, but they were instead used against her, despite the fact that she had a law degree. She had years and years of travel where she fought to regain rule over Hawaii before she died. She was actively prevented from ever leading her people again. Um, Hawaiian independence is still a contentious issue. And before the, the worries of COVID understandably took over the, the extra thinking space for the entire globe, Hawaiian independence was still a real issue um, that was making headlines for many of the islanders. So in that way, the quilt that Queen Liliokalani made is highly relevant today. Um, but it also makes me think, like, was she in that room? Was she planning? Was she remembering? Was she working hard as the mother of her people to, to share this identity? Because she had no idea if she would ever be able to speak it to her people again as their queen. Was this her effort to leave a legacy, to leave a testament, to leave the physical embodiment of the nation she sought to lead behind? So these are the things that often get overlooked when we are patted on the head for our sewing, um, metaphorically, sometimes literally. People, you know, at, at parties, you know, oh, what do you do? Well, you know, I, I write quilting and sewing patterns. Oh, I get this weird reaction where suddenly I've become super not interesting to everybody except other people who sew and quilt. Oh, really? Oh, it must be nice to have your hobby be your job. Sewing can and does start revolutions. Sewing can and does communicate our identities, our communities, our values, our hopes, our dreams, our intentions. There are ways to do that that are tactile, something you can cherish in your hand and that can have deep, deep meaning. If you enjoyed this episode of the Whipstitch podcast about Queen Liliokalani's quilt, you can learn more in the show notes, which are linked below this podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>